Sales Tuners, Episode 33, Kai Shon, Chief Revenue Officer at Silverline. We constantly have to get better than yesterday. And it's, it's a constant change and a constant improvement that, that without it, you're sort of just stuck in the same place. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown. The only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody's hands go up. It's time, it's time, it's time. It's Sales Tuner's time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Palu Kuelu, who said, The world is changed by your example, not by your opinion. On today's episode, I'm joined by Kai Shon, Chief Revenue Officer at Silverline, a platinum Salesforce Cloud Alliance partner. Kai started his career at IBM and brings a wealth of sales knowledge and creative ideas to his team. I've been told he may have an obsession with Legos. If the five pieces he's had commissioned for the office are any indication, well, I'd say that's true. And I can't let an introduction of Kai go by without letting you know he raises jellyfish in the office, and he's going to have to explain that one to me. Before we dive in, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors. A big thanks goes out to the team at Octa for helping make this podcast possible. We all know that a better sales process creates a better buying experience, and Octave is transforming the way sales documents are created, distributed, and tracked. Check out a demo at Octave.com. That's O-C-T-I-V.com. All right. Make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 33. But now, with tax day having just passed here in the States, let's get to the conversation where Kai talks about actually finding joy in doing his taxes and how he spent his early days helping other immigrants with their returns. Yeah, I mean, before I had kids and I actually had time, I I actually spent my weekends doing taxes um, at... um, at you know various locations uh, where uh, there tend to be more immigrant populations. So like in New York, I would go to Flushing and I would do taxes for immigrants um, so that they could properly claim the earned income tax credit. So through that process, you know, I became a certified IRS tax preparer. So even today, I'm still doing taxes for a lot of uh, for friends and family. Uh, but back, you know, I was probably, you know, especially during this time of the year, you know, you process between 40 to 60 taxes a week. Uh, and, you know, I enjoyed it. And yeah, there's, there's a reason for that. I mean, when, when I was growing up as an immigrant in this country, um, my dad didn't file taxes for the first 10 years. So wow. now as he retires, I mean, his Social Security check is horrendous. And I, I think about had we had somebody when we first came here doing that, number one, his retirement checks would be better. But number two, we probably missed out on 20, 30 grand worth of benefits that would have really helped my family along back in the day. Sure. Um, and so that's why I got into it. But that was that's a that's a whole nother life ago. Um, I, I, uh, so since you asked, I, I just, I, I no, I, I, I love that. And it couldn't be more timely with tax day having just passed. Yeah. So how awesome, uh, is that now I, I got to bring this up though. I, the rumor has it, Kai, that yeah. you may or may not have actually done the best job of raising those jellyfish that you had in the office. Are, are they still alive? Yeah. You know, jellyfish are, are very tricky animals. Um, which is why, you know, the only, the only, definitive place I know that also has jellyfish in the city is Michael Bloomberg's office because <laughs> uh, I've been there a few times as we where we partner with with Bloomberg um, it, 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 it just look it, it, it's hard uh, you have to keep the right temperature I mean so yes the, the the bobs we call them bobs there are three of them so Bob Bob and Bob uh, <laughs> they lasted for a long time I think they're supposed to live about a year we got it to about seven months um, but yeah, I, I am disappointed. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for calling me out on that. <laughs> had to do it. Had to do it. Your team helped with that. So hey, you know, Kai, in this show, we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that have led to your success in sales. And so I want to start obviously with Silverline. What is that? What are you doing today? And and how does someone decide to buy from you? Sure. Uh, so at at our core, Silverline um, delivers. 
uh, consulting services within the Salesforce ecosystem. So back in the day uh, when we first started, and even ten years or ten, you know, when Salesforce even started back, you know, back you know, in the early part of the century, it was very easy. Someone bought, bought CRM and you set it up, and that that sort of uh, was how everything started, and that's how we we certainly started doing you know small projects to help customers uh, implement uh, Salesforce. But as Salesforce and the ecosystem has evolved, I mean it. We, we're really now, you know, looking at uh, the core of our uh, customer base, which is predominantly financial services and healthcare customers. And instead of just selling, you know, setting up Salesforce generically, I mean, we, we go really, really deep. I mean, we we, we can go into a, you know, a, a bank, uh, not just implement Salesforce, but sort of take care of their entire front end sales processes, the referral management, you know, all the way down to how they interact with their customers. Um, and then you look at what we do in a, in a hospital environment or a healthcare provider environment where we're just, you know, we're helping them, you know, manage their, their patients. We're helping them communicate with their patients more regularly. Um, and you start to realize that as, as the cloud movement is no longer a movement, but becomes uh, sort of this is this is what we're, we're the world that we're living in today, where everything is predominantly in the cloud. Um, Silverline has evolved into where, where we're truly providing business solutions for our customers and building that relationship where we're providing them guidance. And that's ultimately what we sell. We sell expertise, right? Uh, there's a lot of Salesforce, uh, uh, you know, shops out there that are delivering implementations. Um, what we strive to do is to is, you know, go into a customer and let them know, look, we understand your business. Uh, we've worked with many others like yourselves, and this is how we can help you. Um, and though that's, that's, that's really the services that we, that we're able to, to deliver. I think, um, I think it's really interesting that you talked about, you know, like the hospital, because I, I think a lot of people listening may not even realize that Salesforce, right? The software could be used in a hospital setting. It, it may not make sense. So that's pretty fascinating. Well, I mean, it, 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 it took us a while to also convey that to the healthcare community because when they hear Salesforce, they're like, "We don't have salespeople, right? We don't have customers." And and but then you know, if you if you take a look at now, we we've worked with you know a few like cancer uh, treatment centers or even uh, alcohol recovery centers. Uh, a, a lot of think about that, right? These are two uh, two institutions. Uh, whose success rate is incumbent upon following up with their customers, right? If your addiction treatment center, addiction doesn't get resolved over two weeks or a four-week period, like it takes time. And with cancers, this, this is the same thing. Just because you know you go into remission initially, you have to constantly follow up, and, and that's sort of the power of being able to leverage uh, the the core structure of Salesforce, which is a contact database, and they extend that out uh, to apply to practical business matters or, or just practical uh, processes regardless if you're running it as a business or not. Um, and, and that's where, when we go to a hospital, when we go into uh, some of these clinics, we, we don't really talk about sales. You, you just really talk about how, how do you manage your business? Um, and uh, we've certainly been <clears throat> very surprised with the outcome over the past couple of years. Yeah, I bet. So we're, we're going to build back up to, to this, Kai, but take me way back. I mean, I, I know you started your career at IBM, but how did you even get into sales? What did that look like? So, uh, you know, I, when I went to school for finance, I, uh, like everybody else, you, you know, especially like me, uh, growing up, um, you know, we, we were immigrants and we weren't financially very well off, but, you know, I sort of said like, well, I got to make my parents sacrifice pay off. I'm going to go into, uh, wall street where all the money is. And so I majored in finance thinking that this was going to be this great career path. And ultimately the more I dug into it, the more I realized, eh, I'm not sure that wall street was really for me. And that's okay. A lot of my friends are in wall street. They're doing great. Um, but uh, you know, an epiphany came over me. I was in a car with a, with a really good friend of mine. <clears throat> Her name is Adrian. And she's like, you know what? You just love hearing the sound of your voice. You should go into sales. And at first, you know, I took it as an insult, but I thought, I thought, I thought, you know what, you know, it's not a bad idea. Um, and that's how I usually take a lot of the feedback that I get from anybody. It's not a bad idea. I should at least explore it. So uh, the first real sales job I took uh, was at an internship in New York Life uh, over, over the summer of 98, I think. Um, and... Um, you know, at, at the time, I just like, okay, let, what, I kind of said, what are the worst possible things I could sell? And if I either did a good job or at least wasn't completely, um, you know, uh, you know, disparaged by it, then I could, I could look at this into a career. So <clears throat> my first sales job, I made cold calls to retirement centers at 6.30 p.m. Try, try to sell life insurance. That was my first sales job. Um, so I'm sure, I'm sure that was an easy gig. 
Well, you know, it, 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 I, I, <laughs> I, I, I did that on purpose. And, you know, I didn't do bad. I mean, I, you sort of at that point, you learn the art of rejection, which is it's okay to be rejected. And for years after that, that experience sort of got even even sort of made me aware that it is a numbers game. Similarly, you know, when I when I when I was younger and I would go into bars uh, and try to uh, try to speak to women, it was the same thing. Eventually, something's going to hit. Right. So um, and it just sort of evolved that way. And then the next summer I said, well, I just got done with life insurance. What do I do next? So I went and sold cars. Look, I don't want to uh, negate either life insurance or say our cars as an as a ne negative profession for anybody that's listening, because that's clearly not the case. I have a lot of friends that are doing well in both. Um, but for me, I said, well, what are the hardest things to sell? And, and cars sort of became the second thing because, you know, you you hear the negative connotation associated with, with car sales. Sure. And so I was like, let me try this. And at, at the time, this company called Daewoo uh, would, had just launched their uh, – they're, they're, they're trying to, you know, be like Hyundai uh, and, Ki uh, and Kia. They're trying to launch their car brand in the U.S. <clears throat> and they were signing up college students and giving them free cars for like a year. <laughs> uh, as a, That was kind of the, the gimmick, which was have your friends ride in, in the Daewoo and then bring them into the to the uh, to the to the to the actual Daewoo dealership and then show them around and spend time. And so I did that. It was wow. a very good experience, right? Particularly, you know, this is where you get you you start to, you know, when you're saying, well, I'm now selling a product that the marketplace does not know, uh, the brand is not there. Um, and so what do you do? How do you sell a product when you're already at the onset, you're dealing with um, you know, being at a at a at a at a difficult position? Um, and a lot of sellers over their careers, they'll find that this happens. Just because in year one you have a great product. Doesn't mean that in year two your competition is going to catch up some way or there's a major disruptor. We see that every day in the cloud ecosystem. In fact, it's so common that I don't even think it's 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 uh, it's a disruptive anymore. This is sort of the state of the business. But at the time, it taught me some lessons into well, this is where relationships become important, right? This is where um, you you sort of look beyond um, what the, the hand that you're dealt. You sort of just say, suck it up and do your job. Right. Um, and, and, and that's where, you know, you sort of start to look at angles. So if, if my product isn't necessarily the best product to sell and I still have to do this as my job, how else do I approach the situation? And this is where you run different campaigns and different tactics, different initiatives. Um, and you get to be creative. And a lot of my creativity with sales sort of came about this way. Uh, you know, I would organize drinking parties, uh, not drinking and driving parties. But, you know, I would, you know, it was just like, how do I get people to, to talk about my particular product, which is this Daewoo car? Um, and, and that's where, where it went. And, and that was a very good experience for me. And so that's how I got started from an internship in college. And then um, when I was actually interviewing uh, for a sales job um, my, my senior year in college, I felt I was much more prepared. Um, and, and I, you know, the, the three offers I was presented when I, when I, uh, when I, right before graduation was, uh, was IBM Sun and, uh, Sun Microsystems and Microsoft, right? So I, you know, I, I, I think a lot of the internships certainly put me in a position, uh, to get, you know, job offers from, 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 you know, huge technology firms. And, um, and I, I think that's sort of, <clears throat> you, you, you've got to, you've got to do the hard work. I mean, at the end of the day, sales is not an easy profession. And you, you've got to invest the time and you've got to be persistent and you've got to work hard. If you can't do at least one of those three, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. You're, you're, you're in the wrong business. Yeah, go, you're, you're not going to be cut out for sales. Go, go do customer service. And that's okay, right? Because, you know, I've certainly managed employees over the years that wanted to make sales because of the earnings potential, but just didn't know how to handle that rejection. Didn't know, you know, how to deal with, um, you know, Try and try, you know, every salesperson is their own entrepreneur. I don't care if you work for a big company or a small company. This is your business to run. Um, and uh, you may have certain constraints placed on you by your employer, but you don't have constraints put on you in terms of how you approach the situation. I could not agree more with that, Kai. I, I want to say we're over 30 episodes into this show and you're the first person that has related the rejection of sales to dating, but you're 100% right on that. Uh, I was got, I got really good at getting told no uh, on the dating side early in my career as well. Um, so <laughs> I, 
I, I want to talk, Kai, about the, some of those early objections, right? So you, you talked about they forced the creativity into you. Uh, they forced you to find different angles to take. So w- what were some of those early struggles that you had, whether it be in, in those internships or, or your early days at IBM? What were some of those challenges you had to overcome and figure out? Yeah, well, you know, when I first started my IBM career, and I was given this uh, this territory in northern Georgia, East Tennessee. Now, I grew up in the South. Uh, I'm a Southern boy by heart, uh, you know. And, and what, if I'm back home more than you know 12 hours, uh, my Southern twang starts to come out. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, when I started, I was still a Chinese boy because I, I at the time when I looked really, really young, I, you know. And so my territory was a very established IBM territory, um, and um, I honestly I didn't know exactly how I was going to make make an impression um, because. Yeah, and there, it's not a racial element or anything like that. It's just here's a here's a young Chinese man uh, who uh, may be ambitious, uh, selling into in northern Georgia back in the day, and, and to a certain extent today still is. It was all you know. It was like seventy percent of the world's carpets was made in northern Georgia, um, and you know I knew nothing about the carpet business, <laughs> and you know what was how was I supposed to um, you know make my number, retire my quota. Um, and, and, and then once I got into East Tennessee, again, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, established, uh, you know, you know, almost kind of that good old boy network. And I, I, I had to sort of solve the problem. How would I how was I as a salesperson going to be accepted when my competitors, uh, you know, had been in the territory for 20, 30 years? They all went to church with these guys. And you know, what was I going to do? I mean, that was that was from day one. In my opinion, that was what I would my challenge that, that I needed to overcome. Um, and it took some time. I mean, I, I didn't, I, you know, the first six months of my territory, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really do that well. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I analyzed the data and, um, and, you know, at IBM, uh, to this day, you know, they still have a ton of data, right? I mean, you know, with Watson, I mean, it's just like the, the, you know, IBM is great at analyzing data. So, you know, we, we took a look and, and I, I realized at the time, you know, it, maybe maybe I, I need to stop thinking about doing this myself. Um, maybe I need to figure out exactly how this business works. So I, I started reaching out to, um, and IBM was a very partner centric ecosystem, um, and it still is today, where a lot of a lot of the actual transactions flow through business partners. Um, and I just started instead of selling to the customers, and I know this is like you know somebody's going to shoot me for this. Instead of selling to the customers, I started selling to the partners. Um, I started uh, doing dinners and lunches with the partners uh, that were that were that were in my ecosystem. And before the year is over, I can't remember if I actually ended up selling directly to anybody at all that year. Oh wow! Uh, but my partners ended up selling a lot of stuff to my customers. Um, and and eventually by year two, um, it was my partners that allowed me to gain credibility with the customer territory that I actually was assigned. Hmm. Um, so again, you know, if I was given a, you know, a territory in Silicon Valley, it may have been different, but you know, that, that was sort of an approach, but it took some time. It took me about six months to realize, you know what, myself alone in this territory, even with IBM backing me, um, that wasn't going to be enough for me to accomplish my objectives. I needed to reach out, ask for help, build relationships within the territory of people that actually knew who they were. Um, and, you know, with IBM as big as it is, sometimes you get lucky. Uh, sometimes you have and – and at the time, I didn't really have a lot of mentors that were, that, that were able to sort of parlay this information to me. Um, and so the business partners became my mentors. I remember this guy in, in Chattanooga. Uh, his name was, was Kenneth G. Way. Um, and uh, he and I, you know, he, he sort of you know, took me on. Um, and in return, you know, I, I shared with them, I was like, look, this is the territory. This is, these are all the, you know, what, what I had access to was all the customers, right? What he had access to was the expertise, the space. Um, yeah. And, and so hmm. that was an example when I, when I first started, um, you know, at IBM, you know, a lot of, a lot of these, uh, these sort of lessons learned were, were built from that. Um, my next job, I was then thrusted into an environment where, uh, I don't know how many listeners on the phone remember, um, th- this wasn't the mainframe. This was a system called the AS 400. Uh, right. So, oh, yeah. um, and towards, uh, right around 2002, I think, uh, you know, green screens were starting to get out of fashion, and um, and 
you know, this whole concept of webifying the green screen became, you know, became sexy. And, you know, I was thrusted into this role where I had to rejuvenate uh, AS400 sales, or at that time they had renamed it into, into iSeries or System I. Uh, and, you know, again, in a situation where I was thrust into this territory, I wasn't given any sort of expertise or exactly what to do. I got about a week's worth of training about how AS400s worked. And here's the territory, you know, go, go hit your number. <laughs> yeah. Here's your, here's your call list. Um, here's your I, territory. And, and go. And I so a pattern. I, 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 you know, I researched my territory, try to figure out, well, uh, you know, how was I going to impact this? Um, and in a different approach. So in this particular, in, you know, the earlier situation I gave you when I was working with a, with a, almost a reseller in this other approach, I started to approach some ISV partners and I said, and I said, you know, can I get you to to webify your application so that you can show this to your customer and then uh, upsell them and then force them to upgrade into the to the new AS four hundred because at the time I just needed to sell a new system. I didn't need to, you know, if I upgraded it was okay. I'd have to sell it brand new, and we did some sell some brand new. So then that was the time that you know I was about twenty three or twenty four at the time when I realized, look, hardware doesn't sell itself. You need a you need an application on top of the hardware layer to actually make the customer want to buy more hardware. So indirectly, in I started selling software just to be able to influence the, the hardware. Um, so again, just looking at the, the territory and, and recognizing, you know, I need help in order to achieve my number. And I think oftentimes that's the, it, it's, you know, and I, I have a lot of sales reps um, that, you know, have come and gone at Silverline. And, you know, I think, you know, the, the first thing of, of, of any seller is to acknowledge you can't do this yourself. You need him. That's you right. need help. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the, the more you can surround you with good help, uh, meaning, and what I mean by good help is help is everywhere. There's experts everywhere. Good help is when that person helps you, it also helps themselves, right? If, if by the act of helping Kai make his number, you also hit your quota for selling this and selling this, you have more of an incentive to work with me. Um, and, 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 you know, those, the first two jobs at IBM really defined how I viewed sales in general, uh, which is um, you have to leverage uh, your, your partners to get into it. And, and even Silverline today, at the end of the day, we are a Salesforce partner, right? We are primarily a channel sales organization, uh, you know, without, because we only work on the Salesforce platform and nothing else. We're very reliant on having good relationships with Salesforce and making sure that Salesforce is aware that as a company, we're not just here to benefit our top line um, and bottom line. We're here to make sure that we are the best partner to allow Salesforce to extend their platform, to increase user adoption, uh, to increase upsell of, of, of platform licenses, whatever. And that's how we, and, and again, I'm, you know, none of this is angles, it's, it's just the truth, right? That's why Salesforce use us yeah. as a value partner because we invest in our business in ways that complement what Salesforce is driving into the territory, right? And, and, and I, I would argue that any company, any CEO, any, any CRO, any, any VP of sales, uh, they acknowledge that you can't grow without understanding uh, how you can leverage your partners, right? You may be able to do one single Terry single sing, single job well, but if you're trying to scale your business, you're trying to scale your territory. You have to have partners. There's there's no way uh, to, uh, to to get around that. So, Kai, as you talked about you know, growth and scale and, and, and that kind of deal. One of the things you've told me before is the reason why you left IBM was because you didn't think they were changing fast enough. Like what, what was yeah, that? You know, in the, in, you know, in, in, I'm sure if anybody from IBM listens to this, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll get some stares, but it, it was right around 2007, 2008, you know, we had the great recession and, you know, cloud started to become a very prevalent thing. Everybody wanted to understand what cloud was. Everybody wanted to understand what platform as a service, you know, whatever the subscription model was going to be, we're, entering the subscription economy. Um, and at the time, in my opinion, uh, IBM was woefully unprepared. Uh, this was a, a territory that uh, sort of uh, attacked IBM head on because IBM had made its business, you know, uh, a, a lot of their business was, you know, selling these very large hosted managed services environments where they sold a customer, you know, dozens of mainframes or data centers. And this is how all the processing was done. And it was all done in a brick and mortar fashion. And IBM's response to the cloud was, let's do private cloud. 
right? And I said to myself, what the heck is a private cloud? And how is that going to encourage someone like me uh, and the rest of my colleagues who, you know, had only been in, in, in technology for less than five years? Uh, and we saw the clear picture was everything's going to eventually move into the cloud because it's easy, right? The infrastructure isn't, you know, it was, you know, you didn't have to sort of pay off, you know, the, the power consumption is like all the things that went into managing these large data centers could potentially go away or it would essentially be outsourced, right? Um, and, and I just, I, 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 I didn't, I just, I didn't agree with the strategy at the time. I, you know, I was not very high up in the, in the organization, um, and, and so I said, look, what, you know, and, and from, a, from a timing perspective, I knew the founders at Silverline, they were just getting started. Um, and it made sense to make that switch. Um, and there, there are personal reasons I also made the switch that I won't get into today. Uh, but um, for me, it, it, was, it was primarily um, just sort of understanding where the market was going, right? And, and, and if I look at today, um, that was absolutely the right decision, and no ding on IBM. I mean, I, I you know, it, it gave me my start. It's still a wonderful company. Um, it's in, you know, after I left, you know, it uh, they started to now acquire more firms. But you know, I also feel like you know they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to buy in, you know, late. They could have invested a lot earlier and not have someone like Amazon, you know, own the entire. Uh, that entire marketplace like that was basically theirs that they gave up and that's somewhat disappointing to me when I you know when for the longest time um, You know, I was a fervent, you know, big blue, you know, I was is all about big blue. You know, I just just like um, I uh, You know, I'm, I'm very passionate loyal to Silverline, you know, I used to be very passionate loyal about IBM um, but it was change and I didn't think IBM was adapting to change quick enough and that's why I made the, the transition I spent, you know, a small stint at Oracle through an acquisition of one of the companies that I led Salesforce or I'm led sales for, uh, you got me talking about Salesforce. Um, and, and it was funny to me. I remember Larry Ellison coming out and saying, you know, the cloud is not a thing. No one is interested in the cloud. It's not going anywhere. And, you know, obviously he had to change tune as well. And again, like you said, also started snapping up uh, quite a different few companies. But uh, so now you're at Silverline, you have, you've made that transition. You're still kind of being an evangelist uh, for products. You're, you're taking a new uh, cloud infrastructure into companies that really don't understand or, or know where things are going. But what I want to talk about, Kai, is you're, you're, you're going up against entrenched players like IBM who've had these customers for years. So as you talk about whether it's at, at Silverline or people listening on the phone today, they're trying to sell new technologies into entrenched competitive spaces. How do they do that? How do they open up those well, opportunities? You know, I, I think, I think, it's not as difficult as it seems, right? Maybe five years ago, or even seven years ago, you know, there were there were you know the there were a lot of pockets where um, it was difficult. Um, but there, in my opinion, there are very few verticals and in, in to that to specifically sub verticals that are um, wary of investing in the cloud because they're they're seeing it being done. They're seeing. Um, you know, uh, we, we work in very heavily regulated industries, you know, financial services and healthcare, and we have to constantly stay on top of all the new laws that are being introduced and some uh, that uh, will likely change, you know, over the course of this year, given this new administration that, that, that will impact, you know, how we work with our customers. But ultimately, um, I don't, I, I, I know, I, my opinion is that it's no longer, um, it's no longer an obstacle that you're in the cloud. Um, more and more, even customers that are heavily on-prem, which I, you know, there, there, there are very few that are exclusively on-premise, you know, we're at least able to have the conversation of well, what's it like to manage a hybrid environment. I mean, most, most, most of our customers have you know, some, some stuff that's still on-prem and, and some of the stuff that's, on, that's in the cloud, and we're slowly moving everything into the cloud. I don't think, it's, I don't think that the cloud concept is that big. They see their, they see their competitors. Uh, and their partners uh, move into the cloud. Uh, they're able to overcome compliance issues. They're able to overcome security issues. Uh, they're not getting hacked, right? So when was the last time that you heard Salesforce, uh, any of their customers get hacked? And that's kind of where you would hack is the customer information. Um, so, so sure. Well, so so let's let's assume uh, get past the cloud, right? But still, you're going up against entrenched players that that's you have to get them to truly move away from something they've been doing for maybe 10, 15 years. Well, look, and, and, and I think that this is the this is the one area where back to you know being being a, a partner of Salesforce. Quite honestly, Salesforce does a lot of the heavy lifting. 
right? Um, a lot of the, the marketing, the point of views, the white papers, the thought leadership, uh, Salesforce does a lot of that for their own platform. Uh, and then we're able to just basically reinforce it with industry expertise. So while Salesforce, uh, you know, is, is putting out all the um, all the positions on why you should come to the cloud, why you should why you should look at Salesforce over what you already have. Silverline, we built that very very deep why, right? So we go into a we go into a retail bank, and we're not just selling the platform, but we understand within the bank each department, whether it's on the retail banking side, the commercial banking side, uh, the treasury side, all the elements of a bank's business. We're able to go very deep and articulate. This is why something like something like Salesforce can benefit how you're working today. How you know, and um, and that's 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 really where our power comes in. We don't really at the end of the day when we sell, we sell less about technology and we sell more to specific industry processes that uh, these companies want to invest in. Right? Not and, and, and to a certain extent they need to invest in um, because they see their competitors doing it. And and we're just able to tell the when we win, it's because we in my opinion is we we told a better story. Right. We've been able to we're able to articulate why, you know, the bank down the street is has already done this, has been doing this for years. Why are you not? You know, this is this is the benefit of why you should be doing this going forward. Um, I don't think it's rocket science. It, it, it's, it's just building up that expertise over time. It's having the right team members at Silverline um, that understand these industries. I mean, my industry experts uh, you know, we, we have a guy here that's a registered nurse, right? So if he's going into a hospital and he's really? explaining to them why you should do this and he's like, well, you know, I'm a registered nurse and this is, you know, or, you know, on, on the banking side, I have someone that worked in a bank for 14 years. So she knows exactly how to talk, uh, to, uh, you know, she, she, she had every job from the teller on up. And so she understands their daily pains. This is this is the value that Silverline and any other uh, ecosystem partner that's that understands um, that uh, this is how you differentiate yourself. And it's again, in, and I, I look at your competitors. You know, my, we have some of the some of our, our the, the the best Microsoft competitors that we deal with. You know, are, are able to bring similar notions to the table. And if that's the case, and ultimately, if that's the case, uh, you know, then it's just it's just good old fashioned competition to say who's got the best story to tell. I don't know. I don't really know what I mean. We we invest a lot in the content. We invest in, in, in even internally. Uh, we we espouse the notion of being a good storyteller to solve that problem. Right. Mm hmm. I think what you're getting at, Kai, for, for me at least, is I've always said, you, in my opinion, you can teach anyone mm -hmm. to sell, right? Just to purely sell. But if you have industry knowledge and if you are a true subject matter expert and then I teach you how to sell, what you're really doing is going in and having yeah. a business conversation. And that's what we strive to do. And even with our sellers that don't have that industry knowledge, uh, we train them. We have we uh, in this year in particular, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're asking them to get certified within particular industries. Um, and um, and quite honestly, I don't think you have any choice. I mean, I, I look at you know I, I look at you know how uh, every day my competitors are getting good and better than they were the day before. So we constantly have to get better uh, than the day than yesterday. And it's it's a constant change and a constant improvement that that uh, without it you sort of just stuck in the same place. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this, Kai. So, you know, as a platinum partner with Salesforce, I, you, you've, you've built your business on top of this ecosystem in, in the, the partner relationship, which is fantastic, but you kind of have all your eggs in one basket. How do you, how do you uh, deal with that? Or are you attempting to diversify yeah, at all? You know, it, this is, this is definitely the age old question from a strategy standpoint. Now, to be fair, uh, the basket, the eggs are in a very, very big basket and there's a lot of eggs. Which is a definitely a, a good thing, right yeah. Now. Don't and, and and you know the executive team at Silverline is under sort of you know we we certainly you know have the impression that yeah this this likely won't last forever. Nothing good ever does. Um, so uh, with uh, as with anything, you diversify. And and the good thing about being in the Salesforce ecosystem is you can diversify without having to leave the ecosystem uh, because sell, unlike something like Siebel which you know, you fear with Oracle, you're very familiar with, where SIBO was oh, just yeah. a straight-laced CRM product. Um, Salesforce is a platform, 
right? It's, 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 it's a cloud platform and now uh, they've extended it so much where you can basically develop anything that you want. Any application that you want to develop is possible on the Salesforce platform. And that's led to this massive ecosystem of ISV partners, uh, some that were, that were born inside the Salesforce ecosystem uh, and others that uh, became aware of it and recognized they had to invest and have now ported their application into the Salesforce ecosystem. I can, and particularly within the in industries I serve, decide to do work for one of these ISVs, diversify my revenue stream, and yet not leave the Salesforce ecosystem. And so the, for the first time in a long time, I mean, you, you sort of say to myself, maybe it's okay. Maybe it's okay that we just stay in Salesforce because there's still a, a lot of opportunity um, for, for partnerships and for channels to, to develop and evolve. And that's why we haven't, you know, certainly we um, have expertise um, in other platforms. We've integrated to probably 300 different disparate applications uh, in ERP. So we know of them. Our, our, our consultants are very familiar um, with them. But uh, we lead with Salesforce and those become complementary to our, to, our, to our overall offering. You're never going to see us come out with an offering uh, on Microsoft, you're never going to see us come. It's just it, we we just don't believe at this state we need to. Ask me in three years if things have changed, but I I just <laughs> I, I, I sure. we are still nonetheless diversifying, uh, and um, yeah. and that's sort of the key to our growth. Uh, it's much easier to if I have to sustain 20, 30, 40 percent year over year growth to not have to keep doing it just within one Salesforce channel. If I can say okay, this year I'll have to grow 15 percent in Salesforce. But these other few areas, I'm experimenting two to three hundred percent growth, and then overall, I'm still getting at thirty to forty percent. Well, that's okay. That's not a that's not a bad way to go about it. It's more sustainable. It allows me to nurture um, existing cash cow. It lets me to start develop, um, you know, some some emerging uh, business areas, and then it allows me to to do some exploration uh, on what the next what the next uh, what the next uh, specialty is going to be. Now, Kai, I, I know you're a competitive person, but how do you sustain this year over year growth? And and what I mean by that is like keep the energy level up, right? Because after you've been successful for so long, it's kind of like, okay, wake up, just you know, re rinse and repeat, and we're going to hit our numbers again. How do you maintain it's the that energy? Um, you know, when Rich and Goodish started Silverline, they they had sort of they set out to build a company that they would also want to work in. Right. So neither Rich and Goodish are sort of these flashy entrepreneurs that drive around Ferraris. I mean, they literally reinvest everything back into the company. Right. And what that's created is this culture where um, and look, it's, it's not like we we spoil our employees, although some of our competitors and, and partners may think so. Uh, we try to create an environment where uh, not only are the consultants here to do their job, but they're able to grow their careers. They're able to grow their skill sets, um, and you know they're able to provide their feedback. I mean, a good place to 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 just see this is take a look at our Glassdoor reviews, right? Um, you know, we've we've now been on Crane's uh, you know top place to work. I think five years running. Um, I think I think in addition to just being good, smart, uh, persistent, I, I think uh, you know having this culture that can. That, that can uh, maintain, uh, you know, uh, sort of being able to nurture the employee. Um, look, we make mistakes. Not everybody's perfect, but, you know, but I think over the years, even as we've grown on, uh, we're going to get, we're getting closer to 200 employees. I think the, 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 the general culture uh, has not drastically shifted. Right. It's not all of a sudden we became, you know, a complete cubicle environment or anything like that. I mean, I, you know, but but I think that's that's what's kept the energy is uh, is uh, is is the culture. Um, so you said you started to say you have you know made some mistakes. I know everything can't always be rainbows and butterflies. So tell me about a time when you truly have failed. Things just did not go your way. And, and it, well, you failed. look, you know, I, we you know, if, if there's just talking about personal mistakes or are you talking about company mistakes? Yeah, per personal. Something you've done as a salesperson where you just flat out um, failed. You know, I, I don't know if this is a salesperson or this being a sales manager, but I, I think one of the most difficult things to do um, is to identify the right talent for the right job, right? 
Um, and you know, when as as you're trying to grow your sales organization, uh, oftentimes you know you may think that a person that you're hiring um, is 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 right for that job. I'm not going to get into names because you know it's a small ecosystem. Of course, but, not asking that. Um, we've certainly seen people on paper or just by reputation. Um, that are these, these, these fantastic, you know, professionals, right. Where, um, you know, they have a lot of relationships, they know how to sell. Um, and you say to yourself, I really want that person on my team. Um, I'm going to do everything that I can to get them. Um, and once they're on, they do a great job for a period of time, but then, uh, and then inevitably they leave, uh, and some of them start other businesses. Some of those businesses compete with ours. And then you finally re realize that, you know, it's, you know, some of the mistakes that you made is, is, is just, uh, it's, it's, it comes down to, to just, you know, finding the right talent that is in line with your culture. And, um, that's going to give you ROI on, on the investment that you made in them. And I think some of the mistakes that we made was looking at really, really good people, quite honestly, they should have just been working, starting their own companies. Um, and the time that we wasted trying to, uh, insert them into our organization. Those are major failures. I mean, and 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 when, and particularly when you thrust some of those folks in 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 senior roles, and it doesn't work out well. Um, time, you know, you 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 know, time gets spent, right? And and I've seen, and I and you know, I've gotten, we've gotten, we've gotten, I've gotten. I think you just people are getting better uh, about this uh, in general. But for me, uh, every every major uh, every major mistake. Uh, that I've made and has has come down to um, hiring the wrong person for the job. I wish we had more time to, to dive into that because one of the things you said earlier was uh, every salesperson is yeah. an entrepreneur, but you you kind of just though kind of I, I can't talk today contradicted yourself a little bit just because you said hey they really should have just become that entrepreneur and gone out there. But, but I, I understood uh, the point that you were making. Kai, we've got to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. When we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away and sales tuners, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. Sales tuners, Octave has built a sales productivity platform that streamlines the workflow for creating and managing your sales documents. Everything from presentations and quotes to all of your proposals and contracts. They can pull data from your CRM, CPQ, and ERP systems, saving you time and accelerating each sales opportunity. Octave has been around since 2010 and now serves more than 400 organizations. I'm talking global enterprises, guys, like GE and Siemens, national brands like Angie's List and FedEx Office, and even industry innovators like Double Dutch and Lindenwood Bell. You've got to check them out. Go to Octave.com. That's O-C-T-I-V.com to learn more. And hey, during your demo, be sure to tell them you heard about them on the Sales Tuners podcast. We're back and it's time for the money round. Kai, are you ready for the money I round? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make it easy. What's the one thing, Kai, that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's just, I, I mean, is it cliche just to say that you just, it's just being persistent um, and, and, and not, 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 not giving up easily, uh, you know, and um you can either say that's persistence or, or just being able to to look at uh, look at a problem from different uh, from different angles and solving it that way. Um, but every case where there's been a, a transformation uh, to better myself, it's always been uh, that combination. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell your 22 year old self to spend the next 30 days I, doing? You, you know what? <laughs> um, I don't know if I would tell myself anything different. I, I, I have to say, like the mistakes and in, in the experience I had from 22 on has defined who I am today. Um, I, I'm, yeah. Is it is it rare for 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 is is it rare? You just I just I, I don't know if I would tell myself anything different. I would want myself to make the the same mistakes because without it. I wouldn't be in the place I am today, which I'm actually very happy with. And, and I think about some of those mistakes actually got me to where I met my wife. I mean, it's just like these things like you, you wonder, I, I just don't know if I would actually really want to change anything. Maybe that. I, I think that is the good answer though. No, it, it is. It's like, give yourself the freedom to make yeah. mistakes. 
Yeah. What's a uh, the two part question here, Kai? Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose. Honestly, I I, I hate to lose. Uh, you know, and this may be just being the the Chinese immigrant, where winning is uh, is basically winning is doing your job, right? Um, and this is why I don't I don't take compliments very well. <laughs> um, you know, growing up, we didn't I didn't get a lot of compliments. It was you know you got straight A's. Okay, well you're just doing your job. So if I'm being hired as a sales professional, winning is just part of my job. Uh, and I really hate to lose. I mean, when we lose a big deal, like I, I start to really get into under the covers. Well, why did we do this? You know, how do we make sure that this doesn't happen again? Um, so I would say most of my energy is spent on on that I hate to lose. That doesn't mean that I'm not spending time celebrating the wins uh, with the team, but it just it doesn't get me going as much as uh, as making sure that I'm winning all the time. <laughs> Personally, that may be one of my favorite responses to that. So kudos to you. Kai, what's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? Um, so look, I, I, I read this book uh, once every year, um, usually when I get to about Q4. And that's that's been the biggest quarter of my life for every year that I've been in sales, which is approaching 20. Um, but I'll pick up Sun Tzu's The Art of War, not because he's a Chinese author, uh, but because um, – Every time I read it, I something new comes up. Uh, it, it's not just reading for the information that's in there, but I think through the entire year I've just had in sales and some of the new problems I've been introduced to, and then it's almost like Sun Tzu speaking back to me. Uh, where you know, did I did I approach that 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 problem different? Was this the right timing to execute this particular tactic? Um, and so not only does it serve to reflect on my 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 previous year but it helps sort of refocus me for the sales year ahead. And I would recommend if you haven't read it, you got to pick up, there's, there's, there's many translations. I don't know if there's one I really particularly recommend. Um, I think they, they all generally get the, get the thought across. But what I've learned, what the key thing I've learned um, uh, from the art of war is it really doesn't matter how good you are. Uh, and we've seen this happen multiple times in the business. You can actually have the best product, uh, the uh, the best people behind the product, and because the timing is wrong, because uh, you know, because uh, your competitor somehow found out what you were doing, or just because it was raining, you could fail. So, <laughs> um, so I would encourage those that haven't read it to, to really take a look at look at this book. There's a lot of parables in there for anyone. Well, we're going to make this really easy. So sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Kai's suggestion of the art of war for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30 day trial of audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book. What's something Kai that you believe that nearly no one agrees with you on? I think, I think, I think there's a lot. I think almost is it for me, I've sort of built my mantra around doing the unconventional thing. Um, whether it's working with my team or proposing different ideas to my customers and partners, oftentimes, um, what, what, what the ideas that I come up with, people will find, you know, that it either won't work or, or it's, it might even sometimes be repulsive. I, I don't really know. Um, but, um, but ultimately, um, I think over time, my team in particular, uh, has seen this when, you know, I've, I've, I've given them an idea and they just, they don't believe it's going to work and we, we, we give it a shot and, you know, 50, 50, you know, maybe, maybe it works out, but it's, it's just, it's just constantly being unconventional and having no one agree with me at the onset that this is a good idea. Uh, and, and me having fought over it enough times to realize I need to, I need to, I need to stand on my position because it's, it, it's the fact that no one else is thinking about it this way is, is why it may just work. Kai, what's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? Um, look, if if you're grinding, um, ultimately, you know, some of us go into sales because we enjoy doing it. Uh, some of us are forced into sales because, uh, for lack of better opportunity, there's always uh, more sales uh, positions out there. Um, but you know, unless you're selling a really, really uh, terrible product, don't give up. Just, just, just don't, don't give up. Uh, look for help. Look for ways. Uh, somebody before you has sold that product or that solution well. Um, and and you know if, if ultimately uh, 
you do you, you do figure out that the product or service that you're selling uh, isn't isn't worth it, but you still feel like you've got that sales energy in you. Find another company to sell for. Uh, but but in the meanwhile, develop those sales skills, develop the ability to talk and relate to customers. Um, that skill set will be useful for the rest of your life. I, mean, I look at all of my young sellers today. Um, some of them, you know, a year in, two years in, tell me, you know, what, I'm done selling, and I'm like, you haven't even started, right? Pick up these skill sets. Um, because they'll serve you well uh, for the rest of your career because you can always fall back into selling something. I mean, that's sort of just the, the pragma- pragmatic Kai and me uh, talking. I'm going to get you out of here on this one. How, wh- how could someone find you, Kai, or connect with you if they wanted to after the show today? I'm fairly open uh, to, 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 to just reaching out that way. Um, so just certainly send me an email, reference, uh, reference Jim, uh, and I'd be happy to, to make some time for you. This has been a blast. Thank you so much for joining me, Kai. All right. Thank you. The constant change and constant improvement Kai talked about really hit me today. So knowing we have to constantly get better than yesterday, let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, be unconventional. If something isn't working, consider your options. Instead of trying the same thing again and again, get creative and find a way to approach the situation differently. How else could you work the sale? In what other venue? Would a conversational tweet open up the door? What about a cocktail party to help break the ice? Thinking about different ways to sell your product is one of the best ways to react to the inevitable no situations that you know you will encounter. Number two, think like an entrepreneur. Whether you're working for a big company or a startup, a sales career is your own business to run. You may have certain constraints or expectations placed on you by your employer, but you don't have constraints put on you in terms of how you approach the situation. As you learn the art of rejection, you should be able to firmly own and manage your career trajectory. Number three, no salesperson is an island. No matter how you might feel at any given moment, you're not in this alone. In fact, it's better that way. The more you can surround yourself with quality resources that are genuinely interested in seeing you succeed, the better. You may be great at a single job, but if you're truly dedicated to scaling your business, you need partners to help along the way. Identify those people and figure out the win-win scenarios. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you have questions you'd like me to ask our guest, please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. Be sure to sign up for our email news list where we send out expanded content and previews of upcoming guests. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And they stay-